Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So I'm going to talk about 21 powerful persuasion techniques that I personally use. So I've had on a lot of people about the topic of persuasion because, let's face it, we all want to convince people to agree with us all the time. Nobody should ever disagree with any of us about anything. That is intolerable. You need, though, sometimes a little extra boost, like some sort of techniques or persuasion theory to at least argue your point or make a convincing argument or or put your best foot forward when trying to convince people. And And again, I've had on Robert Cialdini, who wrote the book, influence. I've had on Scott Adams many times who wrote uh, Win Bigley about Donald Trump's persuasion techniques. I've had on uh, Bill Petit and Brandon Lemon about their book, The Power Bible, and talked about their persuasion techniques. But recently I had an opportunity to engage in a debate. Like it was an official debate that I was invited to participate in. When I was preparing for the debate and when I was in the debate, I noticed that I was using a lot of techniques over and over again, in particular techniques that I've been using for decades. And these work not just for debates, but they work for any kind of argument, any kind of discussion, any time when you're trying to convince someone of something that you passionately believe in, any time. It's also good as defense. So if someone's trying to manipulate you, it's good to recognize and practice these techniques whenever you can to recognize when somebody else is trying to manipulate you. And so I figure I will go over these techniques that I used and and how I've used them, specific examples and how you could use them. And so, but first off, I just want to mention, is it just me or does it feel like there is no more news anymore? I mean, ever since the election, okay, yes, there's COVID news. And, but it's like, it's like, it's like one or zero. It's like, we're either going to have more lockdowns or we're not. It's like one sentence news. 
And then there's obviously no more, I mean, there's vague political news, but, but suddenly there's no scandals. And I mean, the conspiracy theory is that the media loves Biden and hates Trump. So they never publish anything good about Trump. They would never publish anything bad about Biden. One person came up to me and said, James, can you believe what they're saying about Hunter Biden? This guy was uh, having sex with crack whores in, in China while smoking crack. Can you believe Hunter Biden did that? And my only response was, of course I believe it. That's exactly what I expect the son of a vice president and now president-elect to do is have sex with crack whores in China. It would be more unusual to me if it was like a, a bus driver or a plumber doing that in China and being wined and dined by the Chinese leaders instead of, you know, driving a bus. But now there's just nothing. Jay, have you seen anything about Hunter Biden in the news lately? Nope, nothing. Well, we did. We, we do see, uh, you know, Joe Biden sprained his legs while playing with his dog. Yeah, that's the news today is that Joe Biden sprained his foot. And and. Yeah, look, the latest news, I just Googled, and I'm, I'm on Google News. Here's one month ago, smoking gun email reveals how Hunter Biden introduced Ukrainian businessman to VP dad. All right, that's the latest news. Oh, oh no, here's one from five days ago. Computer repairman at center of Hunter Biden scandal. I thought they were gonna say computer repairman <laughs> having sex with a crack horse in China alongside Hunter Biden. Now that would be unusual if that was the article. Like, what's that computer repairman doing in China? Uh, but yeah, so the small repair shop in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, made headlines after they had blah, blah, blah. Since then, John Paul Mac Isaac, what kind of name is that? He's like named after the Beatles or something. His name is John Paul Mac Isaac, has since closed down his computer repair business, leaving a closed sign in the shop's window. Wow, he's gotten death threats. Uh, that's odd. Everyone's well, getting death threat right now. Why would he get death threats? I guess people don't want you talking about Hunter Biden. Maybe we, maybe we should delete this part of the podcast. But anyway, no news is good news. And we're going to talk about persuasion. I, pr I promise you, you will hear at least half of these and think to yourself, huh, I had uh, this technique would have been useful with my girlfriend or boyfriend or boss or whatever, because they're useful. Now, I was in a debate and I don't, and I've, I've talked about this before. I don't write stuff with the idea to be controversial. Somebody did a video when I had the New York city is dead article, which by the way, and I've said this also before the news about New York city, unfortunately has gotten today in the New York post, there was an article about how up to one third of New York city businesses have, have closed down. New Jersey is actually in worse shape. I just, I hope, there's some sort of bailout that helps. I don't know what will help, but you know, we've talked a little bit about solutions here. But so, and when I wrote that article, someone wrote that, oh, I was just trying to be controversial. That, and I've, I've, I've mentioned this. If you write just to be controversial, then you're not a writer. A writer writes stories. And it's very important to keep that in mind. And if everything you wrote was, if you just took the opposite opinion about everything, you would be like the most boring writer. Nobody would ever read you. But I explained in the article that I, I loved New York City and I and I wanted it to to succeed and not fail. And I felt people were in denial. So that was one example of being controversial. The flip side of when you write, you should have a unique opinion. It is important to have a unique opinion. And 
if you're just writing the same thing everyone else is writing with nothing new to say, and I think that's what most articles are, is then then what's what's the point? Then you're not a good writer. You're not you're not saying anything that's that's adding to the knowledge of the world. You should be reading and listening instead of writing and talking in in that case. But I wrote another. I've written many articles that you know just stating my opinions and. Some people agree with my opinions. Some people don't agree with my opinions. And I respect that completely. So I wrote an article about why I wasn't going to vote. I didn't I didn't intend to convince anybody else not to vote. Uh, I'm going to have more on this in a little bit. And I, I totally understand why people think it's important to vote. So I was invited to participate in a debate where the other side was going to talk about how it's potentially even morally wrong to not vote. and. You know, my basic argument there is, I just want to handle the moral issue for a second. In the United States, we have the right to vote. And a right is different. We have the right to vote and we have the obligation, for instance, to pay taxes. We're obligated to pay taxes and we have a right to vote, which means it's not an obligation. It's a right. It's a privilege. So I could choose to do it, but it's also, I have the right to not vote. That's the definition of having the right as opposed to an obligation. Now, we're going to have some intermissions in this podcast, by the way, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about taxes and Jesus in a second. But first, the main issue here is I was in this debate. The guy I was debating, quite honestly, I'm not going to insult him or anything. He's a good guy. I know him by coincidence. We were Facebook friends. He just wasn't very persuasive. He wasn't using good persuasion techniques. It was almost like trivial to debate because it wasn't really getting to the issues. But okay. Let's talk about the techniques. So one thing that people tend to do when they feel they're losing an argument, they zoom out and make it about something else. So for instance, um, you know, we were talking about whether it's important to vote or not in the United States in a presidential election. And this person said, he started off by saying it's wrong to not vote. And then his first argument was when you have an election with so much at stake, like you know, racism and other issues. And I said, hold on a second. Are we talking about the 230 year old institution of voting or are we debating about racism? Because I'm happy to debate about racism, but let's just make sure what we are, let's define what we are debating about. If we're debating about racism, let me know. And that's what I'll debate. But if we're debating about all the elections and voting in general as a right and whether it's wrong or not to not vote, then let me know. So that's zooming out. And what I did there also, and I'll talk more about this, I labeled what he was doing. And right away, it works because right away he said, no, 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 let's stick to voting. And everybody, there was a bunch of people involved and everyone said, yes, let's, the moderator said, let's stick to the voting question. That was number one, zooming out. Number two, question assumptions. So one thing this person said, to be honest, I don't remember the exact words, but let's say he said this. It's scientific fact that voting reduces inequality. And another person said, uh, because different people in the audience were allowed to talk, another person said, you can't change the system if you don't vote. And so I just asked a simple question. Is that true? Is it true you can't change the system if you don't vote? Like, I didn't know the answer. And, you know, part of engaging in a conversation is that you have to listen. And if someone says something that you don't know, it's fair, it's fair to say, is that really, is that true? Um, it's okay to not know things. 
I'll tell you when, whenever I go on uh, TV, like let's say CNBC or something like that, you're not, and I don't want to use CNBC as an example, but heck I'll use it. It's not okay to say, I don't know if you're a, a news pundit on TV, they don't really like it. You're supposed to know everything, which is BS because no one knows everything. But in a debate or in a conversation, I think it humanizes you a little bit and it, it shows that you're listening. If you ask, is that, tell, if that, is that's true, if you really can't change the system, if you don't vote, then I might change my mind about voting. By the way, you shouldn't engage in a debate if you're not willing to change your mind. Now, I mean, obviously there's some things you're not going to change your mind about, but I'm the sort of person who tends to believe whoever the last person I spoke to is, which is part of the reason I'm, I'm very, like, I'm very, all, I'm vigorously alt-center. I'm, I'm actually kind of left of center, but the alt-alt-left, when you're just left of center, they practically think you're a fascist, so this has been a weird time. In any case, these two statements, you can change the system if you don't vote, and someone said it's a scientific fact that voting reduces inequality. It's okay to ask, this is the question assumptions technique, is this true? What is the evidence of this? Now, obviously, these two things are not true. Voting does not reduce inequality, and I don't know why, how they got that. And you can't change the system if you don't vote. That's not true. What if, what if Joe Biden didn't vote? He's going to change the system. And we don't, I mean, I'm assuming he voted, but it's just a weird statement. Like you're not allowed to do anything if you, if you don't, if you're not one out of 150 million voters, but asking the question, is this true? Stops the train of their thought and forces them to take a step back and either produce evidence which maybe will win the debate for them, or they have to be more specific about what they're saying. They have to say something that's true, or they have to say, well, I don't know. And then that particular argument is wrong. This happens all the time when two, uh, I mean, I was just having, um, not an argument, but a discussion with Robin. She said, um, in my office, doing podcasts every day from eight in the morning till six at night. And I'm like, is this true? <laughs> well, what is the evidence of this? And so now she's keeping a calendar of all the times when I'm in my office. Fortunately, at one o'clock today, I stepped out of my office and I said to her, let's take a walk around the block. So now she can't say this about today. So anyway, question assumptions, technique number two. Now, this is a key one. Don't let them straw man attack. So a straw man is when they take a weaker subset. So there's a lot of people who don't vote, okay? 150 million people voted and something like 100 million eligible voters didn't vote, 100 million people. So a straw man is when somebody takes a weaker subset of the non-voters in this case and tries to make that weaker subset include you. So someone said, people not voting, it's the same thing as if they're saying, they don't care about my rights. Again, a straw man is when someone takes a weaker subgroup in the category being debated and tries to generalize it to the entire group. Perhaps there are non-voters who don't care about a person's rights. But are all non-voters people who don't care about rights? No, I mean, I care about rights. It's one of the reasons why I care about the right to vote. I'm glad we have the right to vote. I want there to be equal rights, civil rights, every kind of right. I'm in favor of all the rights and none of the wrongs. But don't let someone straw man attack you, which is to put you in a subgroup of the whole category. For instance, your boyfriend, says to you, you know, you're always going out at night. Are you, and I, I never know where you are. That, that, that pro, anytime I've met somebody who does that, it means they're cheating on me. 
well, that's a straw man attack. Like now it's no longer about whether you're going out at night, it's about whether you're cheating. And so you have to recognize when someone's using a straw man attack on you and you have to call it out. So in this particular case where someone said, if you don't vote, it means you don't care about my rights. I had to say, well, I actually very much do care about your rights, but you can't say all 100 million non-voters don't care about rights. This is all related, but don't let them change the topic. So in, in a particular, in this particular debate, someone said, this is the most important election ever. And one thing I said was, are we debating this election? And again, I, I said this, or are we deba debating voting, which has been around for you know the entire US? Or is this about this one election we should vote? Or is it about how one should always vote? So always call out when two sides are debating two different topics. This happens all the time in relationships. Like maybe one side is saying, this weekend, the kitchen was a mess. You didn't clean up any of the dishes and I've got resentful and you're always lazy. Uh, is this about being lazy or is this about not cleaning up the dishes? So now, a lot of this is related to labeling. This is a very powerful technique. Always notice and then say when these things occur, like all of the techniques above always point out, hey, you know, you just changed the topic or hey, are we debating racism or, or is this true? Notice when they say something that's an opinion or notice when they're changing the subject or notice when they're attacking you. So when I wrote this New York City is dead article, a lot of people wrote responses and some people were pretty angry at me. They, they had curse words in the title and they were like, this guy is not a, a real New Yorker. He doesn't have grit, whatever. That's called an ad hominem attack. If someone uses an ad hominem attack rather than actual reasonable discussion and logic, you say, you just insulted me. I thought we were talking reasonably about something. If you insult me, you automatically lose. Like, so I started and, and look, I was just reading, uh, you know, Woody Allen has this new autobiography and I know, you know, it's very controversial. I didn't really follow all the stuff that was going on when he was in the news a few years ago. I know he's married his daughter or whatever, but the guy's made 20 or so movies. He's got an impressive career. He's kind of a, you know, he was a, he, you know, he was winning awards in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 00s and 10s for his movies. So I wanted to read his autobiography and understand his creativity a little more. And he mentioned how he never cares what other people think. Like he even, he won three Oscars, including Best Picture. I think this was like in 1970 for the movie um, Annie Hall. He said he didn't even go to the Oscars. He didn't even know he won until the next morning. And he, he, he thought about it for like one minute. And then he went back to work writing his new movie. And so I respect a guy like that. He doesn't care at all what, what people think. I do. And so when everybody was insulting me, my feelings were hurt. But then I just really focused on, it's a truism that if someone attacks you personally, they've already lost the debate. And if, if that's all anyone could do when they debate or, or argue or whatever, then they're not worth even responding to. But again, you have to label. So this is a very important one. I'm gonna let you think about that one for a second. And I wanna just ask the question and answer it. What did Jesus think about taxes? Did Jesus like paying his taxes? Jay, what do you think? Well, I felt like Jesus is always about equality. I felt like 
he would have like a different tax brackets for different people. Yeah, so if they, like a, a progressive tax you're saying. So like if yep. you make more money, you pay more taxes. Yes. So someone asks him, this is in Matthew twenty-two seventeen. Someone asks Jesus, tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And look, taxation was a huge issue because Rome would take over these areas, like in this case, Judea, which is modern day Israel, and Rome and Herod had huge taxes. So Jesus had a political opinion on this. He could have been a revolutionary. He could have railed against Roman taxation or advocated for the benefits provided by the taxes. But instead he answered, and this is the famous quote, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus said, pay your taxes. And why shouldn't he say? He, had, he didn't make any money. He just kind of roamed the countryside and anytime he needed something, he like if he needed a glass of wine, he would just make it appear. It's hard to kind of pay taxes on that or, or mention that in your tax returns. Oh, I created 20 bottles of wine at a wedding. How do you get taxed on that? Anyway, next persuasion technique. So this is similar to the straw man attack. Don't allow a hollow man attack. So a hollow man is when somebody tries to equate you with people who don't really exist. So it's an, a hollow man is an invisible person that now you have to defend yourself against. So for instance, in this debate about voting, people kept saying, people died for your right to vote. I don't know anybody who died for my right to vote. I don't know anybody at all. Now, I'm not disbelieving it, but I, I said I didn't realize that if some invisible person died for my right to vote 300 years ago, then that means I morally have to vote. You know, again, I'm pointing out the technique. I'm pointing out that they use an invisible person to fight me. I can't fight back against, I can't, fighting is the wrong word. I can't convince an invisible person. I'm discussing the issue with visible people. You know, if someone says, if you're arguing with your boyfriend and, and he says, oh, women are always like this. Or if a girl says, oh, you know, you're just like every other man. I can't defend myself against the entire species of men. Men are despicable though, but that's besides the point. I, I wrote an article. This was, this was a more controversial article than I thought it would be. In 2011, I wrote an article called Why I Want My Daughters to Be Lesbians. And it was basically about how I know men. And if I was a woman, I probably wouldn't want to marry a man. They're disgusting. A lot of people were upset about that article. You shouldn't say that. What if your daughters become lesbians? Well, then they followed my advice. I'm pretty happy about that. So, but in any case, don't allow a hollow man attack or, you know, defend yourself against that. Now, this next one's important. People will always give you a false dichotomy. What does that mean? So they might say, you either vote or you're a racist. Let's say um, you either go to college or you're going to get a bad job. You either own a home or you're flushing money down the toilet renting. These are not true statements. Like it's not true that you either vote or you're a racist. It's not true that if you don't go to college, you won't get a good job. But these are often arguments people make. You know, you'll go out with me tonight if you love me. It's an argument people sometimes make. It's a false dichotomy. This is just an opinion. So, but you have to call it out or else you'll be stuck trying to argue you're not a racist when the actual argument is about voting. So that's a false dichotomy. The other thing is don't allow fear techniques. Someone might say at stake 
is our humanity. Or if you don't go to college, you're going to end up, you know, broke and struggling and you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. All of these things are impossible to prove and uses fear to make an argument. So for instance, for voting, here's what you should say. There have been many important votes where many thought that was true, that at stake was our humanity, but it's never true. Fear is not an argument, nor is fear the right way to create a rational argument. I did a little bit of a study. I went to newspapers.com, which is an archive of all newspapers going back hundreds of years. And I searched on every single election and I searched for the phrase, the most important election ever. That phrase, the most important election ever was used to describe every single election. So don't allow fear techniques in an argument. Now, again, these are a lot of these are techniques that are defense techniques. My assumption is, is that you've thought out your reasoning, your rationalization and your facts about what you're trying to communicate. You're not gonna have persuasion techniques if you don't really have something worth persuading. You have to make sure you have something worth persuading. But the key to persuasion is to not be manipulated or sort of shoved into some alleyway, persuasion alleyway that you don't wanna be in. So this happened, this next one happened a lot with the New York City is dead article. So this technique is called anecdote is not argument. So if someone says, this is what some people said to me, oh, New York City is beautiful now. Everybody is dining outdoors. It's like Parisian culture. Uh, I was just outside. There were people who were playing music and juggling in the street. That's great. I'm glad that New York City has those things happening and I've witnessed it myself, but it's not relevant to the economic issues that I bring up in my original article. So in terms of like this election, people were telling anecdotes all day. Like Twitter and Facebook must've made so much money. Every time everyone hit reload, oh, someone's arguing with me. This, this troll, this anonymous person disagrees with me. Everybody was like all day long on Twitter arguing the election. And listen, it's very important. You are what you put your attention towards. If you watch birds all the time, you probably should be an ornithologist. If you constantly play golf, maybe you should be a golf pro. If you argue on the internet all the time about the election, you're probably just a piece of shit. Like it's just the reality. So anecdotes are not gonna convince anyone that your argument is correct. Now, this is a good positive technique. And so this is one that often works in comedy. So if a debate is in front of an audience or if you're doing comedy or if you're a lawyer and, and arguing in front of a jury or if you're negotiating a deal, you wanna tribe build. In a debate, you might say, we're all interested in this question for the same reason. You know, we wanna make a better society. We wanna make informed choices. We would like to reduce crime. We want the best leaders. In comedy, this could be useful. You might talk to the crowd a little bit and you say, oh, you're from Canada? Me too. What street are you on? You're building a tribe with the audience. Even when you're selling a company, you might say when you're making the pitch, hey, this partnership can help us all bring down Amazon or Google, you know, some competitor. So it brings you guys together so you're no longer on opposite sides of the table. The goal of tribe building is to take the kind of mythical table that you're supposedly on opposite sides of and make sure you're all sitting on the same side of the table.
Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside. It's so comfortable and it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use hymns. 
HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. HIMSS.com slash James. That's how, I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. This is where we start to get into facts. Facts are the best persuasion technique, of course. Well, I actually like labeling a lot as well. If they're just giving opinions and you're saying, is this true? And they don't have any facts, they're not going to win the debate. But one of the facts that I did research is that when there is more voting, this applies mostly to local elections, but when there is higher voter turnout, it actually, the main effect that it has is that it increases the probability that the incumbents win. So the person who's already in office is more likely to win the more people turn out to vote. You could have all sorts of theories why that is, but that is fact. So you have to decide, is this fact relevant to everybody arguing we should all vote? I think it, it's relevant, everybody should vote if they have informed independent opinions and not were just spoon-fed their opinions. I mean, most people don't, if I, I, I did a little experiment, I asked people to tell me about Biden and Trump, three issues they liked and three issues they didn't like and why. And almost nobody could answer these questions. And I don't blame them. I probably can't answer them. And one person said to me, if you want to change the political system, you have to vote. You only have to point out one counterexample. Like I pointed out Frederick Douglass, who was uh, an African-American leader in the you know 1800s, he was not able to vote because at the time, African-Americans weren't able to vote, but he did change the political system. So that's a refutation of the fact. Next one, don't allow bad abstractions. If they say, if all people thought like you, dot, 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 then say, that's, but all people don't think like me, have, and all people have never thought like me, and I'm not trying to make them think like me. That would be reverse vote shaming, and I'm against all shaming. Every single time, if all people thought like you about college, no one will go to college. Fortunately, not everybody thinks like me. If all people thought like you, nobody would vote. All right, fine. 156 million people voted. So clearly not all people think like me. One thing that it's important to do is go meta. Understand what are the hidden agendas behind what's being debated. Are we really debating something else? Ask who benefits from this debate. 
is the issue for America really about voting or is this argument a convenient distraction while there are bigger issues happening? So, you know, there's, there's lots of political issues. Should it really be the case that maybe there should be a four-party system instead of a two-party system? Should people be better educated on all the issues? Should people understand what's going on in China or the Middle East or climate change or whatever? So perhaps the elites in power like the debate about voting because any one vote is insignificant compared to the real impact each individual can have on society. So you could write a book and you'll have a much larger voice than just casting a vote. But it's it's almost, hey, let's distract everybody so they don't write books and that disagree with us and try to change the system. So find the hidden messages in the marketing of what's being debated. For a lot of people think it's crazy for me never to buy a home. I always like to rent. But is there a higher agenda? For instance, there's a $15 trillion mortgage industry run by the banks. That might be part of the higher agenda that that is part of the marketing that convinces everybody that, you know, house, owning a house somehow is a, a, people think it's a right or a must. If you're having an argument or a negotiation, this is such a powerful technique, actually. This is in a debate. But what are the rules for winning the debate? If they say there is no way to defend not voting, then ask, if you can be shown at least one way to defend not voting, would that change your mind? Both sides have to provide a roadmap for how they can be proven wrong. That's important for any debate. Like if you just mindlessly say, well, clearly, you know, Biden's a jerk or Trump's a, a jerk or he doesn't, he's a fascist. You have to ask, well, before we start discussing this, what would convince you to change your mind? Is there anything? If nothing, then fine. But if Yes, then we can have a, a discussion that we both might learn something. This works in negotiating too. If I'm negotiating a salary, you know, let's say I want to hire a, a raise in my salary. My boss says, uh, well, nobody in the industry makes as high as you make. Well, of course, we know what to ask right away. Is that true? Is that factual? And let's say it is true. You could ask, well, what is the path towards getting a higher salary? And if he says, well, you got to work here another five years, that might be the actual reason. And then I might quit. Or he might say, well, if you could show me that you're doing double the work of everyone in the industry, all right, fine. I'll show you I'm doing double the work. I remember one time I was negotiating the sale of a company and we agreed that whatever I would make in advertising for the next year multiplied by a certain number would be the amount I would sell the company for. I had a certain number in my head about how much I would make from advertising during the next year. But that's when the guy I was negotiating with, he brought out all the facts and it turned out he probably knew this in advance. He was a good negotiator. Turned out it was projected that I was going to make a lot less from advertising. But since I agreed to the rules for the negotiation, that's the price I was locked into. Now, I could have said no, but it was I still wanted to sell the company and it was fine. But it was a good technique to, for negotiation. This I've spoken about before, this next one, and it's a very important technique. It's called steel man. And Charlie Munger also calls this invert. So you need to be able to argue their point better than they can argue it. So if someone is gonna argue with me about voting, I should attempt to learn how to argue their side even better than they can argue it. So when I'm preparing for the debate, I have to ask myself, well, if I was debating me, what would I say? And so for instance, 
what if one vote did make the difference? What if, you know, you lived in a state or a city or whatever where one vote could potentially decide the election? That would be an important reason to vote. And you don't really know in advance if one vote's going to decide things. Another thing is, what if voting would encourage people to be more engaged, more part of the community, more familiar with issues? What if there's evidence that more voting makes you more knowledgeable about society and, and the issues and life? What if what, evidence that voting actually makes life better because you feel great to be part of a community? That's how I would probably steel man or invert the argument. But again, if you're arguing with your spouse, if you're arguing with your boss, always steel man the argument. Teach people, like if someone's debating against me poorly, you should be able to say, listen, you, you just did an ad hominem attack. How about you say, instead of just insulting me about New York City is dead, how about you say, listen, London has been bombed. Paris was effectively shut down for years from the, the plague and the 30 years war and, and all these other things. Rome was sacked by the, the Huns and, and torn apart. If all of those cities could survive, New York City could probably survive. So that's a way I'd steal man that New York City is dead argument. All right, this is a good one, shaping. So a lot of the techniques I've been describing, not all of them, but a lot of them have been about defending yourself against manipulation. There's been some that have been positive, uh, meaning, you know, kind of going on the offensive, but this one is very much on the offensive. This is called shaping, and it's a very strong cognitive bias that you could subtly trigger against your opponent, your boss, if you're negotiating, your spouse or your friends or whoever. Basically, you're going to say their qualities that you want them to have. You're gonna shape their qualities. It's gonna trigger a cognitive bias. So you could say, for instance, in a debate, the audience is here because they feel it's important to work for a better, more fair system. Or the moderator, I wanna congratulate the moderator for asking balanced questions and staying on point. Or you could say, I'm glad my opponent and I are open-minded enough to consider that the other side might be correct. Shaping triggers a cognitive bias to act in the way shaped because nobody wants to disappoint. Oh, they recognize these very good, honorable qualities in me. I better make sure I exhibit these qualities. In comedy, you might say, thank God the lockdown is over. I can tell you guys are out to have a good time. And so now they wanna have a good time. Or if you're selling a company, you might say to the person buying your company, I want to work with you, most importantly, because I only work with honest people. So now you're, you're trying to shape them to be honest. Does it work all the time? No, none of these things work all the time. But I will tell you, this is an extremely, this a technique is so powerful, it's almost like magic. When you shape, people do act like the qualities. Now, you wouldn't say qualities that are completely the opposite of them, but shaping is very powerful because they're not going to want to disappoint you. Shaping is one of the most powerful ones. Shaping, inverting, going meta. I mean, all of these are very important. I would encourage you to labeling, understanding what a straw man attack is, understanding what the zoom out technique is, understanding a hollow man attack, a false dichotomy. These are very important persuasion techniques. It's very useful to understand all of them. Some of them you'll use to persuade and some of them you will use to defend yourself against being manipulated. You're going to be on the defensive more often than you're going to be on the offensive. Why is that? It's because most people don't have any facts. Most people argue 
because of emotions. They argue emotionally. And when they do that, they start insulting you. They start with false dichotomies. They start using fear techniques, hollow man techniques. They change the topic. If they feel like they're losing, they quickly change the topic in ways that you didn't realize. So you have to be totally aware of these in order to defend yourself. You're not going to be able to think of these techniques on the fly. You're not going to realize that they're happening to you when they're happening because it's going to be very emotional, very intense. So you have to be aware that these techniques exist. So let me see. We had, we had one diversion, which was talking about taxes and Jesus. What about another one? You know, I always think this is a very interesting thing about creativity that when you think about Einstein, for instance, Einstein, Albert Einstein was a very creative guy. He would um, do these thought, what he called thought experiments. He would imagine, for instance, what is it like if a man is running the same speed as the speed of light? Like what, 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 would, a, what would a ray of light look like to this person who is running as fast as the ray of light? And he was very creative and that would help him come up with ideas about the universe. And then he would use the math of physics or the physics of math to prove his point or, you know, write a paper about his theory. But people, people, if you, if I ask you, what did Einstein do? You might say E equals MC squared. You might say the general theory of relativity, the special theory of relativity, but that's basically it. You would think Einstein's only done one or two things in his life. The thing that prevents people from being creative is often, and, and this is a cliche, but it's often perfectionism. They don't realize that Picasso has painted or drawn 60,000 works of art. You might know about a dozen of them, but he drew 60,000 works of art. Einstein, guess how many papers Einstein has done? 319, 319 papers. So what, what did he write about? Well, here's one on bivector fields, part two. Here's one on the work and personality of Walter Nernst. I don't even know who that is. Uh, here's one on gravitational equations and the problems of emotion, part two. Here's generalization of Kaluza's theory of electricity. So again, probably these papers are nonsense, but the way you create quality is to create quantity. When people say idea, this is related to the thing people always say, oh, ideas are a dime a dozen. That's fine come up with dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of ideas. And there might be one good one. There might be one E equals MC squared, but you have to do a lot. Like I was just reading about Ryan Reynolds this morning. Cause I think he just got engaged. He's an actor. Ryan um, Reynolds. He, he, he married a long time ago. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. There was something about all the women he's, he's dated. So of course oh. I clicked on that and, <laughs> and read all about it. So I have not, I don't even know if I've ever seen a movie with Ryan, Ryan Reynolds in it. Like, well, he was the Green Lantern, right, Jay? Yeah, yeah, he was Green Lantern. He is a Deadpool. He was in Deadpool, right? Yes, he, he was a Deadpool. He, so he's been two superheroes. Yeah, he was Deadpool twice, actually. He was Deadpool in the Wolverine with Hugh Jackman, uh, the origin, I believe. And then uh, he is the new Deadpool now. He's the old Deadpool and the new Deadpool. Yep. So, so, okay, I'm just looking at, he's got a whole Wikipedia page called Ryan Reynolds Filmography. And he's been in, I'm just going to count it up. He's been in movies ever since 1993. His first movie was Ordinary Magic. I can't even think of, what's the first movie? Maybe it was in The In-Laws. That's the first movie. I, I always in Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. He played male nurse. But anyway, he's in one, two, three, four. He's in a bunch of movies. 
Yeah. Oh my God. More than I can count. He's been in like 40 or 50 movies. And then he's been in like another 20 or so TV shows. And then he's been in video games. So like, again, I knew him from one movie, Green Lantern, maybe another one. Um, maybe that I saw the proposal. Yeah. I saw the proposal. That's with, um, what's her name? Sandra Bullock. Uh, oh, and he, um, oh yeah. Deadpool two is the highest. Uh, high, I didn't know this. Do you know this Jay? Deadpool two is the highest grossing R rated film ever that i didn't know that i didn't know i mean i i could imagine like i would 785 million dollars for deadpool wow. 2 man that's gross i mean like deadpool 1 was amazing so uh people would just go to see deadpool 2 deadpool series uh i mean movies is great now let's let's who's like a a famous writer let's let's see like john grisham or no let's do danielle Steele. let's see how many books has danielle Steele written um I mean, I'm sure it's uncountable. First off, she's she's made 25 movies. 25 of her books were made into movies. Uh, let's see. Oh, I have to go to a separate Wikipedia page. List of works. I, I wish they would number them. Yeah, they did it. Uh, it uh, has written 185 books. 185 books. Gosh. So again, don't be a perfectionist. Just start. Just anything you want to do creatively, just start. Anyway, that was 21 persuasion techniques. Jay, was there anything else I was going to cover? Oh, I didn't even do all 21, but that's fine. I did the best ones. I did about 19 of them. Well, if they want to read all the 21, they can find it on your LinkedIn uh, page, right? Uh, yeah, right. I wrote about this on my LinkedIn newsletter. Subscribe to my LinkedIn newsletter. Subscribe to this podcast. By the way, final topic is... Uh, you know what? I'm going to save this for the next video, which is what will the season finale of 2020 look like? So stay tuned. Let me know if you like these kind of off the cuff, more educational how-to podcasts. Like I always experiment with many different things and then I write down what I learn, and then I like to share it. So it was fascinating to me, all these different techniques that not only did I use all of them in this debate, but I noticed that I've used them in arguments, in negotiations, even when talking to my children. So, you know, it's very useful, these techniques, and I'm glad I know them, and I'm glad I was able to share them with you. Now, I'm going to go back to trying to find articles. Actually, you know what? I'm not going to look for articles about Hunter Biden. I'm going to get back to pre-2020. I really want to read more about Meghan Markle. Like what's happened to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle since they quit their family? Are they still, did they still quit the family? Are they still together? I think things are going to return to normal when we're all talking about Meghan Markle again. So Meghan Markle, wherever you are, I hope everybody starts talking about you. Thanks. 